Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Ruth McCarthy, who is officially the managing director of SPI Capital, but also the former head of real estate at JMW, a top 100 national law firm. So welcome to the podcast, Ruth, and thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me on again, Anna. It's a pleasure. So today we're going to be discussing property investing for lawyers. And if you're as a listener, a busy professional, but not a lawyer, don't worry, because almost everything still applies to you. But we wanted to make it specific so that we can really apply some or share some valuable insights based on the experience that we've had with lawyers, but more importantly, with Ruth's experience, because having been in the legal profession so long, you clearly understand the problem. But also as a real estate professional, you've been heavily exposed to property. So let's start at the beginning. Is there anything I've missed about the introduction to you that I should have mentioned? Great. So we have a disproportionate number of clients who are lawyers, SPI capital, but also investment professionals. And there's, I think, some good reasons for this. Lawyers and indeed investment professionals are really great at making money for their clients, but a lot of them struggle to invest personally. So having been a lawyer and focused on property finance for so much of your career, why do you think that is and what's the result? Good question. I suppose in terms of an answer, Anna, really the short answer is time. You know, as a lawyer, I was 20 odd years in private practice. And one thing that you you don't have a huge amount of is time. On a day-to-day basis, you're fighting buyers for your clients. You're under a lot of pressure. And when you do clock off, you're, you're tired. You just don't have the energy. You don't have the headspace just to think about other things, including your investments or lack of them. But as we're digging a bit deeper, I don't think that it's that lawyers don't think that investing and financial planning are important. I absolutely think they do. They'll often, and I did during my career, I worked with a lot of IFAs and wealth managers as part of the day job. But, you know, and I can speak for myself, what you typically do is you'll add investment to your to-do list and that's already a lengthy to-do list and with no spare time weeks and months can pass by and we struggle to actually take action and you know that was the situation pre-pandemic has it changed or will it change post-pandemic yes I absolutely think it is because lawyers like a lot of professionals are really challenging their attitudes around work, wanting to work less, working flexibly. There's a reluctance to go back in that hamster wheel. And you know, a lot of the younger lawyers are really challenging. You know, when I got into practice, it was all about you train, you specialise, and then you work your way up to equity partner. A lot of younger uh, lawyers don't want to do that. They want more work-life balance. And you are talking for lawyers, they need to think about investing to create some kind of passive income because that's really the only way that they're going to be able to get rid of the shackles for want of a better expression and give themselves some passive income and a route to the freedom and flexibility that, that a lot really do crave. 
Mm, really, really good points, Ruth. So from the lawyers that we're working with at the moment, and I guess from what I've seen, it seems like lawyers are often really clued up on some of the things that can intimidate other investors from other walks of life. Because, you know, for example, they're comfortable with the legals, they are good at reading documents when a transaction is happening. So they have an advantage in some senses, but they also have a couple of gaps. And we talked a bit about the time. What's the real problem and the gap that needs to be filled for a good lawyer to become a good investor for themselves? Well, I think it's, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. Lawyers are good investors and can be excellent investors because they're measured, they're analytical, they take their time, but that can work against them as well because lawyers are typically used to being the people with all the answers. Our clients come to us for the answers to questions And when we don't know the answers to those questions, it'll often put us into really a state of kind of, you know, when it comes to your own personal situation, a state of paralysis. You just don't tend to do anything. You'll sit on the fence, you'll navel gaze, you won't take the action, which is crucial for anyone to get into an investment or indeed do anything. You know, you can have all the best ideas in the world, but if you don't actually take any action, then it's all really meaningless. So yes, they've got great knowledge. You know, most will have a a basic knowledge of property law, the world of finance and mortgages. That puts them at an advantage because most people don't actually know different types of mortgages, the impact that that can have. So they've got a great advantage. I think where lawyers need to probably fill gaps is not necessarily filling gaps. It's that more that acceptance that property investment requires expertise. So the same way that a client will come to them for their legal expertise, they need to get comfortable with delegating out, you know, looking at property investment as a job, as a task, like DIY, like gardening, that they will outsource. Because if they don't have the time, and what does this take? I think there's about, you know, $10,000 to become an expert in something. I don't know many lawyers who've got 10,000 spare hours to become an expert in something. So if they can kind of get over that mental, it's more of a mindset thing of, I don't have to have all the answers. I don't need to be able to do this, or I shouldn't need to do this myself. And handing the job over to an expert who can you know, do a great job. I think that's probably the best thing that a lawyer can do. And that will make them into a really great and successful investor is handing the job over to an expert. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Because I think there's a big correlation between how confident you feel in something and whether you feel confident enough to actually take any action and how competent you feel. (laughs) And if you're not feeling competent, but you're used to feeling incredibly well qualified in your day job, then suddenly looking at something and not feeling confident in it is like, oh, I'm just going to avoid that for a bit. (laughs) I think everyone, I think everyone would do the same really. (laughs) I think you're absolutely right. And you know, my experience, you know, I can talk from personal experience as lawyers, as investors tend to fall into two camps They'll either jump in because they think they have the answers and possibly and probably don't, and they'll make mistakes and and have to learn through perhaps losing time and money on mistakes, or they'll sit in their hands, they'll do nothing because nothing is ever quite right, never find the right deal, the timing of the markets, never. There's always a reason to not do something. So those are the kind of 
navel gazers and you know, we speak to them often Anne, and they come to the you know the later stages of their career and they're frustrated with themselves because you know they've maybe been sat on some savings or some money and they take the decision right now is the time to invest but if they'd done it earlier in their career there would be so much more benefit to them and then the returns would have been that much uh, greater so that that's the kind of two camps that I often see or have seen in my career as lawyers. Mm, super interesting. And actually, that was going to be one of my questions for you around when lawyers, but also, I mean, this one in particular applies to professionals of all kinds, because the common theme of being super busy and helping your clients make money, but not having time and energy and the confidence in your own investments. I mean, that is common across many different professions. It's not just lawyers. But anyway, I guess my point is, for you, for example, if you had your time again, at what point in your career, because obviously we can't give investment advice, but at what point would you start thinking about investing and what would you do differently in terms of timing? I think, and you know, it's no different to anyone really, is the earlier you start thinking about investment and financial planning, the better. You know, I think there's a huge education piece around that. You should start with, you know, school children learning, budgeting and, and saving money and investing. But, you know, the earlier people start, the better. I started quite early in my career but I was one of the I suppose the first camp of people I kind of jumped into property investment I was a property lawyer I wasn't hugely experienced but I thought that I had enough knowledge to be a good investor and you know it didn't go amazingly well for me because there were gaps I was a property lawyer and my expertise stopped and finished at property law. There were so many other gaps, you know, which we look at strategy, sourcing, all of the kind of more practical stuff that you need to be a good property investor. I didn't quite appreciate that I needed to do that. And a lot of people, it's not just lawyers, are in the same boat because you look at TV, it makes it look very easy to access, <laughs> you know, easy money through property. And actually, it's not that easy to do it. To be honest, I think it's more than that. It's more than making... Like, and it's, it's not just TV. There's all sorts of media that makes property investing look easy. But the other thing it does is it kind of makes people feel like they can and should invest, which can be true, but it's not necessarily true. Or maybe not with the current kind of capabilities. That's really interesting. Was there anything else you wanted to say on that? Sorry, I interrupted um, yeah, it's just about starting, you know, the earlier that you can possibly start. And you, you look at property as an asset class. It typically, I think since 1952, when Nationwide started um, gathering information, property has doubled in value every nine years. So, you know, that's an argument in itself to actually, you know, get off that fence and do something, take some action. If I had started early in my career and bought the right investments and they had doubled in value, you know, it's a great story. It's a great pension pot and it gives you a few more choices throughout your career. Yeah, definitely. There's that thing in, I don't know, in the financial world of paying future you first, which I quite like. It's like take your 10 or 20 or 30%, whatever of your income that you're going to save and invest and do that before you do anything else, before you start spending money on holidays or nights out or whatever it is that you spend money on. So what do you lawyers actually want from their investments and is property actually a good fit for it? They're not really any different to any other investors. You know, typically 
And we know from our conversations, you know, people want, and lawyers are the same, they want basic boxes to be ticked off. Typically, they want good returns, but without excessive risk. They'll often talk about passive income. They want an investment which delivers some kind of income that they don't need to work for. And that'll be to meet their financial needs for retirement. So it'll give them a bit of freedom and flexibility around work and add into a retirement or a pension pot. Lawyers will typically, you know, retire 60, 65, with the general population living a lot longer. There's just more pressure now for lawyers to plan ahead. And many of the younger generation won't work to that age. They'll want to retire a lot earlier. So we'll need to put in place plans earlier. Property is a great asset class for lawyers because it's low risk and, you know, crucially, it's stable. Property is also a tangible asset class. And lawyers, again, like this, you know, the analogy that you can kick a brick. You know, if you've got bricks and mortar, you know, it may go up, may go down in value, but there's something tangible that you can actually see. And, you know, as I said, you know, property has gone up in value, doubling in value every nine years. That That's a tremendous story in itself to support property investment. But also, you know, you've got the power of leverage. You know, there's not many assets that you can buy more property than the cash that you have available. If you've got a mortgage, you can create a larger property portfolio and make gains and returns on that larger portfolio because you've had access to mortgage and finance. And at the minute, that that is readily available. So again, that makes property a very interesting asset for lawyers. Final point is transactional lawyers in particular are used to working with property as an asset class. So our clients will deal with property in some way, shape or form, whether they're developers, investors, or maybe just have uh, property for, for their business purposes. So it's something that a lot of transactional lawyers are very familiar with on a day-to-day basis. Mm. I want to um, pick up on one point you made, which was that thing about kicking a brick, which Obviously, you shouldn't do because it'll hurt. But like the point is that tangibility, which is what's a trap. It's kind of like the hook for a lot of people, for a lot of investors, which is fantastic. But sometimes investors and in particular, busy professionals, in particular lawyers, it gets translated and they end up buying something that isn't actually that tangible. For example, an off-plan property that hasn't actually been completed yet that may actually have a lot more risk than the marketing brochure says. Um, And that's not to say all off-plan deals are bad, but there is a disproportionate number of people that kind of find themselves in a problematic situation. And we have a couple of clients who have had this difficult experience where, you know, the developer's gone bust and they've lost their money and they're in a lawsuit. And actually, it's not just the investment that they put in the first place, but it's also the time and energy (laughs) to get that money back. And things can go quite badly wrong. So I guess my question is really around why things go so wrong from initially what was, I want to invest in something tangible that delivers me cash flow, to all of a sudden investing in something that has relatively low cash flow and certainly none immediately, for example, off plan or even a property abroad that sort of they're planning on living in part of the time and renting out the rest of the time, but often actually in terms of the numbers doesn't really give them any cash flow. Why does property get translated into something that just isn't going to deliver what they actually want? 
Mm, I, I think long, long way of asking that question. Sorry. No, 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 absolutely. And it kind of resonates because, you know, going back to my own personal situation without kind of laboring on, on my track record, I started with buying off plan properties because they were easier to buy. You know, if you are in a city centre location, you know, you'll have a number of developments which will be coming through at some point and they'll have lovely glitzy brochures and hundreds of thousands of pounds in marketing behind them. And you're the good sales agents that you are being sold a dream. And that dream will be, you know, you are buying you know, a beautiful apartment, you're buying at a discount to market value, there are guaranteed rental returns. And so it's, it's so many red flags. So <laughs> many, you know, so many red flags to us now. But when you don't know what you should be looking for, and it's that kind of herd, Anna, of you know, you're following the crowd and you know they can entice you with, you know, there's three units left, get in quick and it's just easier to buy a new property often than it is to buy something that, you know, we would definitely veer more towards now, a nice cash flowing asset. It's just the enticement of new, glitzy, all of the marketing materials. You'll get quickly caught up in the hype. You'll buy the property. And most investors won't have a strategy. And when I bought initially, I was enticed by the nice marketing material. It was in a city centre location that I knew. But, you know, shame on me. I didn't do any due diligence. I didn't research. I didn't understand, you know, am I actually buying at a discount to market value? Because that's the most difficult thing. I bet you not. I bet you weren't. Yeah, <laughs> yes, Anna, you're absolutely right. I was absolutely not. And, and you know, it's what is the market value? of a new build development because there's no comparables you're not testing it so all the things that I know now I didn't know in the earlier stages of my career and you know that's kind of now where I'd say get expertise because no one draws you aside and says look this is how you invest in property you need to think about your due diligence and your yields and all of this it's just not something that you learn about we're people and if you're time pressed a marketing brochure is an easier buy and a nice development is an easier buy and it allows you to tick off that box of I'm a property investor. Well, which is, I mean, that is what some people want, but if we're talking about the goals that we talked about earlier, it's probably not the best way to do it. So, and just in case there is anyone kind of looking at this kind of opportunity at the moment, I suppose it might make sense to just clarify what we actually mean by that. So the below market value thing, these ridiculous discounts that aren't discounts, like we said, and like you said, it's kind of like if you've made up the price for a development of 100 flats, the developers made up the price and it's very likely that they've made that up in their favour. <laughs> so if they offer you a discount, it's not necessarily a discount and you do need to look at what else is on the market in the wider area, but also what the level of supply and demand and future supply and demand in that area is. And the other thing, what was the other one? Oh, the guaranteed rent. Yeah, this is a huge red flag because a good rental property just rents. You don't need to guarantee the rent. And often those rents are guaranteed above the actual market rent. So in an ideal world, you want or you want someone to be doing an actual market test before you buy something so that you know that that market rent actually gets inquiries, but also to be looking at what other properties that are similar in the area and even the wider area, but 
speak to letting agents in the area about what the actual rent is. Because if you flood a local market with, again, 100, 200 properties at an overinflated rent, there is a need to guarantee that rent. So anyway, that's my rant over. Sorry, I just wanted to leave, <laughs> leave people with something valuable, um, just in case there's an opportunity you're looking at and you're looking at doing your own analysis on it. Just some red flags to avoid. So um, is there anything else you wanted to say about investing for lawyers, Ruth? Any other top tips? Well, the, the only, you know, the kind of key takeaway tip for me, and again, it's from my experiences, I think it's a really sad situation for a lot of lawyers when I speak to them and they've worked so hard throughout their career, so skilled, so talented, and you know, have spent an awful lot of years if they're transactional lawyers and making a lot of clients' money, but they've neglected their own financial planning, looking towards retirement and the pension. But I find it sad when we speak to lawyers who've worked so hard throughout their career only to hit retirement age and not be able to afford to actually retire and have to keep on working because they haven't actually taken the time to either, you know, understand and invest themselves or seek out expertise to do it. And, you know, I know and certainly for the, the lawyers that we work with, I love the sense of relief that almost lawyers get when they pass over the job of property investment to someone else to do it and they can effectively move that job off their to-do list they know that the box is ticked off and and we take great great enjoyment in helping people to reach their financial goals so that's a big thing for me it's lawyers just getting over that mindset of you don't have to do it yourself you can do it yourself you absolutely can but if you don't have the time, if you're working and you're busy, don't hesitate to reach out to an expert mm. for help. And I think one more point on that is actually, I don't think any of the lawyers we work with actually want to stop working as soon as they mm. get reach retirement age. They want to keep doing stuff that keeps them motivated and keeps them, they find purpose in. But having the flexibility to do that on your own terms, I think is the goal. So yeah. Great, because I think the idea of quitting work after working that hard is actually it's not that attractive. It's being able to be in control of it that's the key. Mm. Okay, cool. So if listeners want to follow what you're up to, find out about your business, which is my business, what's the best way for them to do that, Ruth? The best way is on LinkedIn. We keep ourselves fairly active on LinkedIn. So you find me at Ruth McCarthy on LinkedIn. Or if you want to drop me a direct email, it's ruth at spi.capital. Super. Well, thank you so much for joining and thank you for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.